0: Good morning. Good morning. I'm Kevin Wheat, one of the elders here at Redeemer Church. It's good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad that you're with us. I want to start uh, by clarifying a couple of questions I've already been asked this morning. Thank you, Rob. No, Pastor Shannon is not out sick today, Um, and neither is Ryan. You've already seen him talk this morning. Uh, Ryan is actually the younger brother. And so uh, if you want to call him little brother, you can use the word little, just tell him I said it was okay. Um, He likes to point out that he's taller, although I'm hopeful that me standing up here and you guys being down there helps a little bit with the perception of that. And no, I'm not using his iPad. Uh, We do have the same leather case. He likes to massage his with mink oil. That's a true story. Uh, So his has a little bit of a different sheen to it. Um, last week, uh, Pastor Shannon kicked off our series in First Peter, and uh, we are going to continue there today. On April 5th, 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested and imprisoned by the Gestapo for his political activities against the German Nazi government. In response to the persecution that he had experienced and witnessed against other people and the Church of Jesus Christ, Bonhoeffer founded the Confessing Church which represented a major source of Christian opposition to the Nazis. Vocal in his opposition to to Hitler and the Nazi party, his words eventually caught up with him. Two years after being arrested, Bonhoeffer found himself facing the death sentence. On the day when the sentence was to be carried out, a Sunday, he led a service in the prison which housed men of various nationalities. One prisoner... Payne Best, an English army officer who was also facing the death sentence but was later set free, wrote these words describing the last day of Bonhoeffer's life. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions that it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. On his way out, he took me aside. This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. What was it that so possessed this man that at the very moment of his death, He could say something like that. What was the hope that he possessed? And why was he able to cling to it? If you turn on the TV or get on the internet, you will see people and companies marketing and selling products to give us hope. We elected a president whose campaign slogan was the audacity of hope with so many of us buying into the idea of things that will make us healthier and wealthier and more attractive or intelligent, things that will fulfill us, I think it's important that we start out by understanding our culture's definition of hope and the biblical definition of hope. In our culture, when we talk about hope, we are talking about a desire or wish that we have. There is no certainty in it. I can hope I hit my target when I shoot skeet. Some of you hope that Tony Romo can be a great quarterback and lead the Cowboys to the Super Bowl or even a win this afternoon. That is not how the word hope is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, hope refers to the faith or trust or confidence the people of God have for the fulfillment of the future promises of God. When God speaks or commits himself to a future course of action, there is no possibility that what he has promised will not come to pass. Hope simply refers to faith as it looks forward. C.S. Lewis, in the chapter titled Hope, in his book Mere Christianity, said this, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of those things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. As we continue to dig into 1 Peter this morning, we are going to discover that a Christian's hope is a living hope placed in our heart and guarded by a living Savior in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, Please turn to 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 1. We're going to be focused on verses 3, 4, and 5 this morning. If you do not have uh, your Bibles with you, you can follow along with the words on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What do we learn from these verses about this kind of life-shaping hope that not only allows us to die well, but also empowers us to live well in this life? We're going to focus on five things this morning. The first thing that we learn is that hope is merciful. According to his great mercy are the words that Peter uses here in verse 3. There is so much content in this third verse that it's very easy for us to glance over this and look ahead. But in doing so, we would miss the opportunity to address a critical why question. Why would the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ save me, a sinner, knowing everything that I have said, done, and thought? it is because of his great mercy. I love this quote by Spurgeon. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us. Holiness frowns upon us. Power crushes us. Truth confirms the threatening of the law and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of our God that all our hopes begin. Paul says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's some words there in Titus that I think we need to pay particular attention to. And those words are, not because of works done by us. His mercy cannot be earned. The second thing that we learn is that hope is patient. We know it's patient because Peter calls us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading we live in a culture of instant gratification we want the richest most comfortable secure victorious life possible as quickly as possible essentially we want heaven now one of the tragedies of the modern American church is this perception that when you surrender your life to Christ that you can expect those things Unfortunately, I cannot find a single piece of biblical support that promises us any of that in the life that we are living now. What is an inheritance besides something that people argue over and damage relationships for? I see some people shaking their head, been through that. An inheritance is something that's given to us in the future. It is also something that is given and cannot be earned. Treasure in heaven is the Christian's inheritance. It is not tied to our natural birth. It is our inheritance for being born again. Last Sunday, we kicked off our life group again. And I will admit, having some mixed feelings about it, as uh, the group that we'd been a part of before had gotten big, which was a blessing and needed to multiply. Uh, But God had just really moved through that group and really connected everybody. I was excited and a little bit, fearful uh, last Sunday because I had no idea who was going to who was going to show up thankfully for my self esteem at least people actually came uh-huh. and we ordered pizza to feed everybody and the food started to get cold and so I went to bless the food my mind was already thinking ahead about how this new group of people could come together how we could best connect and how we could love and serve other people I get 10 words into the prayer and I just cannot articulate the thoughts in my head. I imagine Peter having a moment like like that as he looked forward to his inheritance in heaven. All the words he could have used. But Peter doesn't really describe what our inheritance is. The words he uses really tell, tell us what it is not. He used the words imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable meaning that it cannot be touched by death. Undefiled meaning that it cannot be stained by evil. And unfading, meaning that it cannot be impaired with time. Think about that for a second. That means that our inheritance in heaven is death proof, sin proof, and time proof. Look at how this language contrasts with the language in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things most of us in this life consider treasure, like material possession and status, all of those things are empty. They have no eternal value. So I would ask you, where are you investing your energy? Where are you investing your passion, your emotional, and financial resources? I'm reminded of what Shannon said last week. He gave the example of being an American Christian or a Christian American. As a Christian, our citizenship is in heaven, our true home is in his presence. Our inheritance is God, he is our portion. And he is our joy. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, the psalmist writes. The third thing that we learn about hope is that it is secure. Hope is secure because it is being guarded by God's power. Back in April, I traveled uh, to Montreal for work with a couple of guys from my office the, the weather was during that really rainy season, and so our flight out of DFW was, was delayed, so we got into Montreal much later than we had expected. We, we landed and were beat. All we wanted to do was get to the hotel, check in, and go to sleep. We got to the hotel, and the gentleman there greeted us with a smile. We gave him our names. He hit that keyboard like a court reporter and then politely looked at us and said, We gave your rooms away. We said... Okay, great. What else do you have available? And he said, book solid. He did offer us fold-out beds for the store closet for the same rate as our original reservations. (laughs) How do we know that after we have been born again, we can stay connected to God and that when we get to heaven, there will still be rooms available? Because Peter tells us that God's power is guarding not only our inheritance, but also us. No one can steal our treasure, and no one can disqualify us from it. Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand i and the father are one clearly as we look at the text here in verses 3 through 5 of first peter we learn that hope is living and it is personal the text tells us he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead earlier we addressed a critical why question and why would god save me a sinner And we know that that is because of his great mercy. Let's think now about a critical how question. How do we have the opportunity to live eternally connected to Christ? Nicodemus essentially asked Jesus this question in John chapter 3. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. People are not very self-aware. I think it's so much easier for us to focus on what other people are or are not doing instead of being transparent with who we are. I certainly am not as self-aware as I should be. I like to be an active guy, run a little bit, swim a little bit, crossfit, box, wrestle. Over the course of the last year, I've, I've had a couple of injuries, a calf injury and an injury to my knee I was hobbling around my office a couple of weeks ago and I had a friend of mine look at me and say, Brother, I have two words for you. Father time. (laughs) I couldn't believe he said it. But he continued. He obviously had more than two words for me. He continued to tell me that if I wanted to think I was 25 and train like I was 25, when I'm a stone's throw away from 40, that I should probably expect to be injured more often. This is Texas. We're in the Bible Belt. I drive by at least six other churches on my way here to Redeemer Church. It is not hard for me to find people who tell me they know who God is. In fact, about a year or so ago, David Johnson and I went door to door um, off of Blackland Road. Every single person we spoke to, every single one, told us that they knew who Jesus was. Oftentimes, What keeps people from a relationship with Christ, a personal relationship with Christ, is not being self-aware of who they are. Of not understanding that they are dead in sin. That they are lost and broken. That apart from Him, they are nothing. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He knew who God was. He didn't need more knowledge. He was a Pharisee. He didn't need new behavior what Nicodemus needed was a new identity. That new identity is only available to us through the resurrection, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is so important that we understand that living hope has nothing to do with us. This is directly at odds with a culture that says it has everything to do with us, that says, me first. That says anything is possible if you work hard enough. You can be self-made. That you are an army of one. I was that guy. For 26 years. I didn't know who Christ was. But I was fanatically focused on being self-made. And no matter what I achieved or what I had, it was never enough. I was always having to pour my hope in something or someone because it was always empty. It wasn't until I discovered what living hope was and found peace in surrendering my life to Jesus Christ almost 13 years ago. Living hope is according to His great mercy, Him causing us to be born again, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and His power. We cannot earn, buy, trade, or talk ourselves into any of those things. We do not and will never deserve it. Living hope has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. He is the object of our hope. If hope is something that we are waiting for in the future, what do we do now? When our lives are gripped by this hope, what does it produce? Peter shows us as he begins verse 3. Praising the one true God who revealed himself in his Son who is of the same essence with the Father with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is my final point this morning. Living hope produces a life of worship, I can tell you that one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen has been in this church. Watching someone that I know and care about who has battled cancer for years worship the one true God. Have you ever had a moment where you've been awed by Christ? That is exactly the moment that Peter is having here. And Paul uses this exact same language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 1.3 and Ephesians 1.3. These men knew about trials and suffering and perseverance on a level that most of us will never understand. But more importantly regardless of what Peter and Paul may have been experiencing in a specific moment or a season of their life, they knew that their salvation was secure. They knew that their time on earth was short in relation to eternity. And they knew that they had a reward in heaven. This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer was not concerned about the handful of possessions that he was leaving behind. He was not looking for the government to give him a stay of execution. Bonhoeffer spoke those words because he had living hope. He had experienced God's mercy. He was born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He was patient through trials and times of suffering, and he knew his inheritance in heaven was secure. Bonhoeffer knew that the gospel is living hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the price that only Jesus could pay for us. And Father, it's just my hope this morning that that this church would know and understand that Scripture is not a word about God, but that it is the word of God. I pray that everyone here this morning would be encouraged, that they would understand that their salvation, if they have it, is secure, that they would know that their time here on this earth is short and that they would point their eyes towards heaven always. Father, we love you this morning. We praise you. We ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.